I was away for a couple of days for the first time in over a year. It was such a good opportunity to be on the road, and it felt so good. It also gave me a chance to catch up on no less than eight books in one two-hour drive, and that's because I was using this incredible app called Blinkist. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more, so when you don't have that free time, you can't read or work on your personal development. That's really annoying. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to just 15 minutes each that you can read or listen to. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash reach. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash reach to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you go and sign up right now at Blinkist.com slash reach. everybody. Welcome to Tuesday Night's Narrative. It's so good to be with you tonight. Uh, we have a really interesting show. I know it's going to sound boring to say Bitcoin, but it isn't boring. It's going to be fascinating. Maybe that's why they called it Bitcoin, because they wanted it to be so hard to, to report on. But we're going to tell you all about it in a new and interesting way. So stick around for the next uh, hour and maybe a little bit longer, and we'll tell you all about it. Noel Kassler is with me tonight. How are you doing, Noel? Excellent, Zev. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Dave Troy, who's a researcher in the field of extremism, but also a systems analyst, is with us here. Hi, how are you doing, Dave? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Zev. It's great to have you on. And Troy Esquivel, who you've not met before, because I believe he's new to all things on TV. He is a Bitcoin purchaser, an early purchaser of Bitcoin. He's going to tell us what it's like to be inside that Bitcoin world. How are you doing, Troy? I'm doing great, Zev. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. April the 14th, tomorrow, is meant to be a really big day for legitimate reasons, because a company called Coinbase is uh, getting its IPO, but also potentially for non-legitimate reasons or more nefarious reasons. And maybe, Dave, you can explain why April the 14th is such an important day in Bitcoin history. So there's a few things going on that are interesting. And again, this is all in the realm of things that are interesting and worth keeping an eye on. Uh, We don't necessarily have a lot of hard intelligence that suggests some kind of imminent craziness to go down. But at the same time, there's some weird signals. So the first thing is, is, you know, as you mentioned, Coinbase is going to be going public. And Coinbase is a a very large, uh, probably one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. So a lot of people buy and sell uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies through it. Um, and so there's a lot of thinking that says that because it's going public and it's probably going to have like an IPO spike, and I think they're doing like direct share offering, something like that, it really legitimizes the entire crypto space because you've got this major company that's going to be coming online that's, you know, kind of representative of the whole movement. But then beyond that, what we've been picking up on in some of the chatter online is that uh, there's a couple of financial analysts connected with a group called Agora Publishing, uh, based in Baltimore, my hometown, um, that uh, has been talking about a $5.1 trillion financial extinction event that's Ooh. going to happen on uh, April 14th. And color me skeptical, you know, it's March 4th, you know, there's been all these dates over time that have been these... Uh, bellwether things that are supposed to lead to various kinds of outcomes. 
But um, the notion that that happens to also be the same date as Coinbase's IPO and that a lot of people are speculating that cryptocurrencies will get chilled quite a bit as a result of that IPO. And we actually saw, you know, Bitcoin rise a bit today um, to some pretty all-time high levels, but also the rise of Ethereum mm. uh, and Tesla stock, which for weird reasons that nobody fully understands, seems to track very closely with crypto activity, something, something having to do with Elon Musk. That's kind of weird. So keep your eyes open. Like it's yeah. kind of a scary scenario. It's interesting, the 5.1 trillion figure is quite specific. What is that referring to? Uh, you know, I assume it's, it's referring to some, you know, uh, overall capitalization of a couple of different markets combined, um, you know, probably talking about equities markets. Yeah, um, but it could uh, also be the uh, the amount of in, of investment into. I mean, there's the three trillion dollar uh, capital spend or whatever it is uh, infrastructure fund that they're doing, uh, and two trillion dollars went into uh, COVID relief. That's almost that's five trillion. So maybe maybe there's yeah, something there. And, Who knows? You know, the the entire Bitcoin capitalization is something like one point three trillion right now. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is this is your traditional kind of. Uh, financial newsletter snake oil. I don't. I don't put a lot of stock in it. But what I do am alarmed by is the convergence of these kinds of financial newsletter types with the people that were involved with January six. There's quite right. a lot of overlap there. There's been snake oil salesmen throughout history selling all sorts of different things, and so and promising apocalypses yeah, on different yeah, dates. Yeah. And yeah, you know. And the closest we've come to anything that looked anything real was the was January sixth. But even that wasn't successful per se. It could just be a lot of fear-mongering, but it's worth keeping an eye on, as you point out. Nevertheless, this bigger picture of what's going on with Bitcoin and and also the attempt by Russia and China to overtake or dethrone the, the dollar is also going on in the background of all of this and has obviously implications on Bitcoin and uh, US hegemony across the world. But uh, before we get into all of that, I think, Troy, it's fascinating that you got into the world of, of Bitcoin because you wanted to get out of being stuck at a job you didn't like. It started around 2016. I just, I was it had nothing to do with the specific job I was doing. I had just, I was in middle management. I was about 10 years in and staring down to another 30 or so. Back then, I think I was on a lot of social media at Facebook, an early adopter of a lot of those platforms before knowing what we know now. So I was very subject to that influence and I was on Reddit a lot. And that was a theme, you know, that comes up a lot with this generation that, you know, and we've seen it in the last couple of years when, when you see OK Boomer. It's transferring the problems that we're having now economically onto the previous generation. And you can argue about the merits of that. That could be a show and of of itself. Mm -hmm. But what it really is about is channeling that anxiety that a lot of people of my generation have, not having the opportunities that they thought they would, whether it be they didn't get to go to college or they did go to college and it didn't guarantee them a future. A lot of that was specifically referencing 2008, and that's Mm -hmm. what we're seeing now. And it's not a coincidence that the Genesis block was created, which is the first, you know, Bitcoin transactions was January 2009, a few months after Lehman Brothers collapsed. And that was specifically in, if you go back to Satoshi Nakamoto, and we'll talk about him later or her. Or them, we don't really know, and it's so just to make sure everyone understands what this is. Uh, the person is supposedly correct, the pseudonymous who, person who who started this whole thing going. Yeah. It's decentralized, so there's no uh, no one's in charge. When yet. did you what? first buy a, a Bitcoin? When was the first purchase? Um, the end of twenty or the end of twenty sixteen, the beginning of twenty seventeen. So yeah. this is right as uh, we're getting to thousand dollars. I think the price was was coming up, and that was a big deal because bef- until that time. 
I think it, it kind of peaked in 2014 to 1,000 and it went back down very quickly. But at this time, this was an all-time high. And the first time it had crested 1,000 and this was a lot of the buzz was going on. Same now, it's just another order of magnitude larger. Yeah, now, 1, now it's, it was a big what deal. is it worth today? 63,000. Wow. And yeah, so on you, the eve of Coinbase's uh, IPO and this, whatever this mm-hmm. here is. If you still had it today, I don't know if you do, but if you still had it today, it would be worth $63,000, that same Bitcoin. Or would it be worth more? Correct, correct. Yeah, but and what I want, I guess what's important to point out is is when you buy them on exchanges like Coinbase or Kraken or, or you, you know, there's a, there's a lot of them. But Coinbase is the first one to go public, and that's what all the buzz is about. Uh, so Coinbase is what I used. And when you set up an account as a normal user, there are limits anywhere else that you use financially, like you're limited to $500 a day or $1,000 a week or something. So it was something I didn't have any choice but to get into slowly. As I was buying, the price was going up and that fed the the need or what I felt was a need to keep buying more. So as much as I could, I got through 2017. I think the value got all the way up to $19,000 by the end of the year. Wow. When did you, you know, quit your job? The rules. Um, I quit my job in 2017. Like, And, and then you started raising your kids at home? You stayed at home? Uh, dad. Yeah, right? we had our first kid in March uh, 2017, which kind of was the first time I started looking at investing or doing anything serious because it's now like, there's now stakeholders in me now. So I got to make responsible decisions. And the price could go to 75000 tomorrow. Mm. It could go to 1000 by the end of the year. Or You said yesterday that you had a uh, sense of this community having changed a lot, that there's a, a, a different feeling in that community than there was at the start of, uh, of Bitcoin. Taking do you think it's been infiltrated by people that have got a bad agenda or trying to misuse the community? Or do you think that the community itself has just transformed into sort of zealots around this because they want it to keep going up? They want the price to keep going up. I mean, we talked about like kind of similarities between the zeal of the, the internet propagandists that we've been seeing for the last four or five years, six years, and these people, but they are they are now stakeholders. It's like you have given them, it's like giving shares in the IRA, like Mm. in the internet research agency. Like you are now financially incentivized to go out and And sell this thing to people, to tell them how great it is, to tell them how it will free them. And you get every flavor, every brand of it's God. It's from God. It's the way it should be. Mm. It's freeing people, the money changers, and giving everybody an equal shot. And that's something the libertarians have been pushing for like generations. And it's always one version of some utopia that's always great on paper, but no one bothers doing the math. And, and what does that actually look like? And yeah. Yeah, the absolutely. people pushing this don't, don't care what it looks like because they're the ones with. You know. It's hard to argue that there hasn't been a shift from early on, like when I was buying it, it's, hey, this is a positive thing. We need to tell more people about this and get more people on board. And now it's like, all right, have fun staying poor. Like you don't get it. I get it. I'm in the in group. You're in the out group. Ha ha. And where have we seen that before? Dave, jump in here because I'm sure this speaks a lot to what you're talking about in terms of how uh, this uh, Gora group began and how it's injected itself into this discourse and and how the the community has changed. This Bitcoin community is is almost uh, radicalized. Yeah, and I should also disclose that I own a tiny bit of uh, Bitcoin. I actually own 0.1 Bitcoin, um, which has gone from 50 bucks when I bought it up to, what, $6,000 now? So that's been okay. But I also own some Dogecoin. My son was interested in 
cryptocurrencies back in like 2013, 2014. And we set up a bunch of old PCs and stuff to like mine Dogecoins. So we ended up with like 3,000 Dogecoins, which we mm-hmm. thought was just sort of fun. And now that's worth, what, $2,400 or something? It's ridiculous. And I don't personally have anything really against the idea of the technology as a alternative investment and something like that. I think there are some ridiculous things going on regarding energy use and the design of Bitcoin isn't very efficient for currency, but there are other designs that address that issue. Bitcoin Cash and some of the other crypto assets work better in that regard. So I think it's an interesting innovation space and I'm a technologist kind of at heart, so I don't I don't decry people playing around with different alternatives. What I object to is the idea that what Bitcoin represents and what Troy was talking about with respect to how cultish this has become is that it's really an attempt to encode, enshrine and code libertarian values Mm -hmm. and to bring people into libertarianism by getting access to their money. And I think that in a democracy and in Western democracies generally, that's the kind of thing we should have a public debate about. We should have some conversation about how it's going to work. And I think governments have a role to play in protecting people who get involved in assets like people that lose their access to their Bitcoin wallets or SOL. And is that okay? Like that's what if grandma loses access to her Bitcoin wallet? She invests in Bitcoin at age 32 as a spry young woman. And then by age 65, can't find her password. There's a lot of that you can't access it if you can't remember your password. Yeah. And you know, these are the, the kinds of things, obviously, there's wallet services that can help mitigate a lot of that. There's technical solutions to these problems. But at the same time, like so much of what is being done with cryptocurrency is being done by hardline libertarian young males. And hardline libertarian young males have a certain view of the world. And I don't know if that's the exact world that I want to be like exactly governed by. Right. So I feel like that that's <laughs> something we should have a conversation about. Yeah. And what, you know, you mentioned with respect to Agora and these folks, this, this outfit called Agora Publishing was founded in about 1978-79 by a guy named Bill Bonner and this other guy, James Dale Davidson. And it's this financial publishing newsletter company that puts out stock tips, basically. But they have a dozen or more different, probably like 20 or something, different outlets that they publish under. So there's different brands for different audiences. And each one has their own kind of like paranoid focus of the world and what's going to happen and what they care about. And some people are gold bugs and other people are into crypto and other people are looking for these kinds of stocks and other people are looking for stocks that are recovering that had been bad, but are now good. And so these folks are basically selling tips and information, which kind of puts them in a a ripe position for insider trading and corruption also. And there's been some accusations that they have traded in information that they shouldn't have and people have been burned by it and what have you. And there was an Unsolved Mysteries episode about this guy, Ray Rivera, that Mm -hmm. died mysteriously and left this really weird note that may or may not have been a suicide note that like references the Freemasons and Bill Bonner and his guy, Porter Stansberry and all this. But anyway, these guys are mixed up in this stuff and they're all connected in with the same network of CNP people that were connected with January 6th. And the fact that they're shouting about April 14th is just weird. Mm-hmm. And they share this kind of really hardcore libertarian philosophy that uh, we see exhibited by Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, the PayPal pop mafia yeah. network. And people. Yeah. And I have to say that I have some personal affiliations with people from that network. And I don't 
find them all to be entirely objectionable. But I think that it's this, it's the covert nature of the idea that you're going to somehow or another bring the country or the world to this solution that they don't know that they need and do it without their consent. It's just not honest. And it's not fundamentally, I think, good for people to do that without their uh, full knowledge and debate in the public sphere around what happens. And the concern that I have right now is that just like with January 6th, where a bunch of people conspired behind closed doors to create a situation that was deadly, people died to try to somehow or another usurp the power of the U.S. government and to affect some kind of vague alternate outcome, that's just fundamentally anti-democratic. It's anti-Western values. It's just anti-everything that I think this country is based on. And the fact that they're trying some similar kinds of plays, and this comes from the Koch network. If you're familiar with Nancy McLean's book called Democracy in Chains, Mm -hmm. she talks about how the Koch brothers worked with an economist named James Buchanan at uh, George Mason University to basically come up with a series of what she calls interrelated plays that allow for the kind of transition into this kind of hardcore libertarian economy without people catching on to it. So they'll introduce, it's like baby steps and little tiny bites of things that get you in that direction. But maybe you're not telling the patient like, okay, we're going to do this to you. It just happens over time. So here you can see the Koch brothers, or at least Charles Koch now, since David is dead, but Koch Industries promoting uh, a talk by Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, or as we like to call them, the Winklevi. And they're promoting Bitcoin and whatnot here, which fine, whatever, like they have the right to do that. But if you notice the last part of what they're saying there, the power of network effects and a decent centralized future. So let's unpack that a little bit. Mm. Network effects means at some point, there's going to be enough people on these kinds of cryptocurrencies to cause a rapid transformation from the way we have been doing things, which involves banks, credit cards, uh, fiat currency, that kind of thing, to quote, a decentralized future, which is code for blockchain and Bitcoin and all of that, which Okay, like that could be part of our future, sure. And in fact, there are cryptocurrency solutions in the works from China and from the Europe, the EU block. And we could do that in the US too. Although regulators here have said well, there's really no reason to. And I disagree with that. But at the same time, that's where we're at. And so the question is, like, do we want a decentralized future? And what does that mean? And excuse me, what are we doing after dinner? Like it's like being taken home without consent, you know? And um, I think that it's time that we talk about that. The moment in history that we're having right now is really we've gone from Bitcoin being a place where you could do some illicit things, basically. You could buy drugs online or whatever you want without getting tracked, even though you could, to now demanding respectability in a way that's contested, surely, but also maybe not, not the right thing for everybody. And it's trying to firstly become a real currency that you could buy houses and whatever with. I mean, that gives it a legitimacy equivalent to the dollar or any other currency. But then there's also this background thing that's going on of, of the Russians and the Chinese trying to dislodge the American dollar from dominance in the world. And that is tied into Bitcoin, although they won't necessarily admit to it. Noel, you're very interested in one piece of this, which doesn't get a lot of attention, but it seems so fundamental to me. It's so environmentally unfriendly. Bitcoin is so unfriendly to the environment. It chugs up so much energy. And it's not really the Bitcoin itself, it's the blockchain, as Troy can explain to us a little later on, but this it's not very efficient. And that makes it crazy that we were gonna try transfer our existence, or these guys are trying to transfer our economic system onto a platform that basically hurts the environment. 
Absolutely. And I I remember the first, I I used to do this folk festival called the Clearwater Festival, which is in the Hudson Valley of New York. It was founded by Pete Seeger. It's one of the nation's oldest like environmental music festivals, all these folk singers and stuff. And I was there in 2017 and I'm like in catering with these folk singers, like getting my food. And this person next to me is like, I'll tell you what, man, it's all about Bitcoin for me now. I'm just buying all this Bitcoin I can get and I'm going to get a house and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, do you know why we're here? Do you understand what Bitcoin does? And clearly this guy did. He's like, yeah, it's a non-fiat currency and I'm not going to be a slave to a bank, man. He thought he was like doing this sort of hippie new age kind of banking. And what confuses me and many people is Bitcoin is there's only 21 million Bitcoin ever created. To, to there, and I'm using layman's terms, there's been 18.6 million bitcoins sold as of last summer, and they have to be verified by this blockchain computer processing, which requires a ton of electricity to run all these servers to make these equations that do the work of verifying this, this currency, that you have this bitcoin, that it exists. The question and fear I have is, and this is all these guys can correct me, but so there's 2.3 million Bitcoins left and it's going to be another 120 years until those are all mined. You know, so in the last 10 years, 18 million Bitcoins, 18.6 million have been taken care of. But now we got to run these computers for 120 years to certify the rest of this. And, and I'm just, as again, layman trying to explain it, but that's crazy. It's crazy that Elon Musk is now, hey, you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. Okay, so I can buy an electric car to help the environment with a form of <laughs> currency that's going to destroy the environment. You know, why? I like banks personally. I'm happy to have money in the bank. And when I, if I do have any money, I, I like Dave said, like, FDIC exists for a reason. What if there's a run on the banks? What if your grandma gets locked out? I know celebrities who bought NFTs in the last month that have <laughs> went to log in and it's not there anymore. Yeah. You know, and they're like, dude, I just bought a Pokemon for 50 grand and it's gone. It's like, go buy a painting. You know, like, but I put my money in old guitars. Like, I'm old fashioned. Like, I want a piece of art or something or I want that money in a blue chip stock somewhere. But, and I get the idea for this new technology and for, like Troy said, and, and like Dave said, a new way of doing things. But you have to be aware of what the whole picture what is. And I think Dave made an excellent point. People don't realize they're being indoctrinated into a philosophy. And I see that when I speak out. On Twitter about this, I'll try to make a joke and explain it to people. The difference between fiat currency. I said, that's like an old school smoking a joint. Bitcoin's this vaping and all this stuff that people do. And when I'll explain that, I'll get attacked by people with the Bitcoin symbol in their thing. And they have they all have the same language. If you want to be a slave to the banks, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And it's like you're sitting there in front of your Game Boy, bro. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I, I, I'll figure it out. We'll buy some property. I, I won't go on a rant about it. But what I've seen and experienced in, in, regarding this in real life, I hear in what these gentlemen are saying. And it yeah. is scary. And it needs sunlight. It needs explanations because it's confusing yeah. stuff. Does that reaction exactly. remind you of anything? Is that familiar at all to anything you've right. experienced in the last couple exactly. of years? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. And it's that's cultish. Trend, you know? Right. That's Donald Trump. That's anybody like I'm going to put a symbol of my allegiance to this person or this concept in my communication field on the outside world. That alone is scary. You know, that's the new power. We've seen what 
that could do, how that could mobilize people. And that was personified. That was what they call cyber to physical. That was no longer a theoretical information attack. That was real bad shit that happened to our country on January 6th by real people that were driven by ideology. Now you're tokenizing that. It's not just the ideology. It's now they've been reinforced. You think that guy was enthusiastic before? If you could talk to that guy right now, you still, not only can you not get him off that pedestal, hey man, cash out and buy something that's real. No, man, this thing's going to the moon. Have you not been paying attention? I've got laser eyes here. Like, you must love things. Okay, man. The laser eyes and the Bitcoin symbols, all that stuff is that kind of cultish symbols that, you know, help to reinforce the social capital between this network of people. And over time, that kind of stuff builds up and it becomes part of the kind of mimetic power of being able to drive this kind of messaging. So for instance, if Elon Musk wakes up tomorrow morning, which he may well and say, everybody has to do X, there's going to be a lot of people doing X and they're going to make memes about it and they're going to put things in their profiles. And that's the issue is that people are generating leverage, financial leverage through and ideological leverage through memetics. And when you combine memetics and finance and government into one sticky web, you have a powerful machine for manipulating society as a whole without government consent, without consent of viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. I was away for a couple of days for the first time in over a year. It was such a good opportunity to be on the road, and it felt so good. It also gave me a chance to catch up on no less than eight books in one two-hour drive, and that's because I was using this incredible app called Blinkist. It's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more, so when you don't have that free time, you can't read or work on your personal development. That's really annoying. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to just 15 minutes each that you can read or listen to. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash reach. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash reach to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you go and sign up right now at Blinkist.com slash reach.